Hello and welcome. I'm Morag Gamble and you're tuning in to Sensemaking in a Changing World. A few months ago, actually, I interviewed my amazingly talented friend, Tim Hollow. He's an author, musician, climate activist, community leader, director of the Greens Institute, founder of Green Music, initiator of so many community initiatives. And he's also currently a Greens candidate for the seat of Canberra in our current federal election. I really wish that our governments at all levels could be filled with people with the heart and thinking that Tim shares and with the practical skills and ideas to what a different world and kind of democracy we would be experiencing. I encourage you to take time to listen to this episode in the lead up to the election. This is not about campaigning. This is deep and thoughtful exploration about what Tim calls living democracy, which is actually the, the title of his forthcoming book. Often we can feel disempowered by the political process, but political will is actually what we need right now to bring the changes necessary. Tim really encourages us that the power to change lies within us all, and that it'll happen not by working individually, but by working together in communities to reimagine our local areas and to begin to see change everywhere. So this show, like all of these podcast episodes, is uh, supported by the Permaculture Education Institute. And before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the unceded lands from which I'm speaking with you, the Gubby Gubby, and pay my deep respect to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to recognise their ability to care for this land, the waters, the biodiversity for so many thousands of years. Make sure to check out the show notes for the links to Tim's work and his new book. And for more information too about our work here at the Permaculture Education Institute. And make sure to subscribe so you get notifications of these weekly podcast episodes and leave us a lovely review. It really does help the algorithm to find and share our little podcast. Enjoy the conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Tim. It's an absolute delight to have you here in conversation. Thanks for having me, Morag. And um, there's so many aspects of the work that you do that I am really excited for us to explore together. Um, Some of the things that you're doing, just for listeners to know at the moment, you're a Greens candidate, um, you're a musician, you're a writer, um, you run the the Green Institute, um, you're a dad. I'm wondering what else have I missed? There's so many different aspects to the work that you do from your creative life to your professional life to your community life to your family life. And, you know, some of the conversations that we've had before when we've met um, have been around these issues of change, of, of leadership, of where is power and, and how we move towards the kind of society that, that we dream upon, that we dream of, and that we know is the kind of regenerative and ecologically and socially just world. Um, before we start heading off in the direction of talking about what that is and how we move to it, I, I wonder whether you might just spend a moment reflecting on what was your point of awakening about social and ecological justice? What sparked you to dedicate your life as you do wholly and completely to this work? Um, I think there's a few things um, that really, you know, from from very early childhood kind of pushed me in that direction. Um, One is growing up as the child of refugees and and the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. Um, And so from a very, very early age, I guess, I grew up with stories of both some of the most awful things that 
humans can do to each other and and really in terms of the things that powerful people in some of the so-called most civilised places in the world do to powerless people and at the same time the extraordinary things that extraordinarily brave members of the community and community groups do for each other at those moments that it is that it's through the actions of good people in relationship with other good people who you saved countless lives um, when governments were destroying um, and corporations working with governments to destroy. So I grew up with this extremely strong sense and my family, not just the Holocaust, but my family fled multiple times from powerful people from Tsarist Russia, from the pogroms under Tsarist Russia, from the communists in in, in China and um, and in Hungary. And so I really grew up very strongly with this sense that centralised power <laughs> is the problem, actually, <laughs> that people exercising coercive dominating power over other people is fundamentally the problem. Mm. Um, so that's been something from a very early childhood. Another thing from very early childhood is just this love of nature. And I grew up bushwalking a lot and um, and spending time up in the mountains and in the ocean and, you know, grew up from, from childhood with an, a, a deep, deep love of nature and then kind of in late teenage kind of starting to notice things like the Rio Earth Summit um, and and coming to this realisation that love of, love of nature in the context of the destruction of nature meant that this was going to be, this was going to be the key theme of my life, basically, um, the, the, the crisis of ecological destruction um, and kind of, Marrying that, I guess, with with these ideas of of centralized coercive power being problematic, and kind of coming to to work through how we need to work for change to protect the environment while understanding ourselves as humans and as human society to be part of the environment and completely connected to it. Mm-hmm. And I guess one other final thing is, you, you, as you mentioned, I'm a musician and. There's a few things that I think I learned from music from also a very early age. One is, one is transcendence. Um, it's that um, I don't think you can be a musician or a music lover without understanding something about transcendence, about, about the greater than human. Um, and that's through what music does to you, but it's also in terms of performing and playing music and playing music with other people, there's just there's there's this amazing intense thing that happens when you're connecting with other people and you're creating something with other people. Um, and I think you can you can have that as a member of an audience uh, uh, as well, um, being part of this extraordinary creative thing that happens when people come together to do something like that. So that was a tremendously powerful lesson. And then kind of going into the music industry, um, also in my late teens, kind of seeing how capitalism destroys creativity and destroys people and destroys artists. And I saw, you know, in the music industry in, in Sydney in the 90s, I just saw people's lives being destroyed by venues being replaced by pokey machines and, you know, extraordinarily talented people just being left behind and destroyed while other people who knew the right people or knew how to spend money on the right things would succeed. Um, 
So, yeah. Well, kind talking of. about music, do you want to just mention about um, the, the green music? Uh, mm. Because that's something that you created, isn't it? Yeah, so that kind of came out of all of these all of these various processes that kind of as a musician, I was always trying to do things like, you know, talk on stage about environmental issues and, and occasionally write and perform songs about environmental issues and things. So you're um, a singer and uh singer and violin and viola player, um, yeah, with the band foreplay. Um and yeah, and then kind of it was really when my when my older child was born, I kind of went, okay, we've actually got to really walk the talk here. Um, and so I insisted that, you know, with our albums, we were recorded in studios that are 100% renewably powered and reducing our travel and, and, and you know, recycled cardboard packaging for the CDs and all of that kind of stuff. And through the process of doing that, started talking to a lot of people in the industry about, there are things we can do, you know, we can, we can fix this because the music industry is full of all of these forward-thinking people just kind of taking part in an industry which is extraordinarily destructive. Um, and around about the same time, I guess, or a few years, as I was having those conversations and a little bit down the track, I was working for Christine Milne in the Australian Senate as one of her advisors, and through that period we managed to get this amazing package of climate reforms through the parliament with a carbon price and a you know renewable energy bank and all and all of these kinds of things and then they got destroyed because we hadn't managed to change politics we'd managed to get something through the parliament but we hadn't managed to change politics and so i kind of i burned out of politics really badly at that point and kind of stepped back and went we actually we've got to do some big deep change here we've got to do some social change we've got to we've got to start to shift cultures and social norms and ideas about who we are as people and as a society and as and as an ecology um and so yeah i put my big focus for for several years then into the role of music in that the role of musicians as as cultural leaders um using shifts in behavior in the music industry you know trying to phase out plastic water bottles shifting packaging moving to 100 renewables using those kinds of things as drivers for social change so this is this is really interesting because i'm you are you're talking about centralized power in government mm. and and cultural change and this burnout but yet you put yourself right in the midst of it all again being a candidate for the Greens for Canberra. So tell me a little bit about how you how you are presenting in that space from this perspective of cultural change and, you know, being able to put yourself in a space where you can, from within the system, be helping to bring the changes you want to see. So... Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm running for a lower house seat. In fact, when the Greens are kind of most often focused on on the Senate, because I think there's an amazing role that we can actually use with local parliamentarians that is virtually never used. The idea of setting up a House of Representatives, you know, is about trying to elect representatives for the community to 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 take their issues into parliaments and it virtually never operates like that certainly not in the australian context it's just ticking a box usually for one of the major parties and sending them off and, and basically voting for in, in a presidential way for the leader of that party um whereas i think there's an extraordinary capacity which 
folks like the, the Voices for Indi Project are really leading in very interesting ways, but there are others who are doing similar kinds of things to say there should be a role for the local member actually as being, the way I put it, as being a kind of a facilitator for the community. I would like to be an MP as facilitator for the community who can who can bring the community together and host these deliberative participatory conversations and actually get people together to think about what are the issues that we are concerned about, how can we talk through them together, you know, in ways that actually, you know, enable us to find creative solutions. And then as an MP, take that voice into the parliament um, and take the solutions and the ideas into parliament, but more than that, actually take the process into parliament and start to demonstrate that there are other ways of governing, that governing doesn't have to be this top-down coercive approach. Governing can be about how you create space for the community to find our own way forward together. Um, it's a It's a radically different form of governance, and I think it's probably in the long run going to be impossible to do within the current political system and we're going to need dramatic reform of the way our political and economic systems work. But what I would like to try to do is demonstrate the possibility of that future through the current system. I think there is scope to do that. Mm. So what are some of those processes that you're talking about in terms of engaging people? Because something that I that I read on your on your site, you were saying, Big changes are possible, but change won't last unless it comes from the community. And so this idea of it not just it's not just bottom up and it's not just top down. There's something else that's going on in between here. And this is the space that I kind of um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of the space where you are. You're it's this facilitating the change and the communication and being almost like a, a bridge or a catalyst for change within both systems i suppose but what are some of those systems of communication or or of relationship building that you've found that you might work with or have worked with already that can help to unlock some of these conversations so i think there's all sorts of really different ways and before i get to some of those examples i want to pick up just briefly on the on the bottom up and top down because this is something i've been thinking through a lot in the context of um, kind of encapsulating my idea of politics through the word ecology um, and what is an ecological politics and this idea of interdependence and interconnection and, and interdependent diversity. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time in these kinds of conversations, people talk about grassroots politics. And I, and I love that terminology. It's really important, the grassroots. But what I'm trying to encapsulate is that actually ecosystems are the grassroots, they're also the bushes, they're also the trees, they're also the birds that fly between and the insects and and, and it's it's the mycelium in the soil and all of it. And the ecology only works because of the interdependence of all of those different parts. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think of democracy in the Western way as this superstructure of powerful people and everybody else who occasionally votes to elect the relevant people to the superstructure and you kind of elect them once every few years and they go off and they govern you for a few years and then they come back and you you vote for them again. Um, And that's 
you know, utterly different from any ecological system. It's 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 a complete failure in, in those terms. So really what we need to try to do is is find mechanisms of interconnectivity everywhere we possibly can and build on them. And, you know, there are some obvious things like simply, you know, creating space for citizens' assemblies and that kind of thing. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of those in kind of in institutional ways, but also in quite ordinary kind of practical day-to-day ways of just bringing people together and having conversations. Um, and that's something I did in the last federal election campaign and had grand plans to do before COVID interrupted this time, but we're still hoping to do some of those where going out into a community, for instance, and, you know, you you book a date for a public meeting and say, we want to discuss with your suburb what are the issues that are relevant to you. And then you, you, you letterbox the whole suburb to invite people. And, and then you door knock in that suburb and you say, hey, we want to be talking with your people in the neighbourhood about what the issues are. And you start gleaning what's going on and what's happening. And you, you, you listen and you bring them together. And then you sit down in a relational way. And that's the key with these citizens' assemblies and really well-developed and well-run deliberative sessions like this are amazing where you can bring people together who might have quite drastically opposing views on a particular idea often in local communities it's a particular development do you want this development to go ahead or do you not and through a deliberative session you can have conversations which aren't about yes or no they're about finding what we love about our community finding what we value which is usually the same (laughs) because humans generally value the same things we value connectivity we value green space we value the the capacity to meet people and all these kinds of things and finding solutions together and through those kinds of conversations almost always you can find a really constructive solution that most people will at least be willing to to live with um so i'm a big fan of those deliberative kind of sessions um but yeah, they don't, as I say, they don't need to be so formalised. It's really, you know, a lot of the time just about listening with open ears and hearing what's going on and then feeding back and and conversing. You know, it should be a conversation that ideas build upon each other so that you can you can take it towards a solution. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's wonderful. And I, I'm still smiling because just what you said about it being an ecology it just boom it shifts everything because it takes away that whole dualism of it and that it's not that we're against them or we've got to fight this system it's we are we are it and it is us and we are the community and we are you know we're everywhere within that system and the relationship it's all about that that interconnectedness or the, the the patterns of connection within it and finding ways to open up the possibilities, you know, those unprecedented possibilities that happen when you sit in a conversational space and take away that us and them. And I think that's that's kind of a, a huge possibility. And just framing it in that way, I think is is a massive mind shift. And and so I wonder whether so this is what you've been focusing on with your with your writing too, isn't it? Like this whole concept of living democracy. Can you maybe just describe what a living democracy is and how that what that looks like? Um, in in twenty five words or less. Um, 
<laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm currently, yeah, as I muttered, kind of in the process of trying to cut about 20,000 words from my from my book on, on this, which is, fingers crossed, going to be out next year, um, called Living Democracy. And I came, I came to that title because I'd been... I'd been talking about democracy as ecology and really wanting to kind of build up this idea and people kept saying to me, you can't have that as the title of a book. You need to, it's too complex. Nobody will read ecological democracy. Um, but then in discussion with a few friends, and again, this is this is the thing, you know, you know, writing a book is such a you know, communal process, really, if you want to do it well, it's having all of these conversations with people because then you had this aha moment which comes out of somewhere else that you weren't expecting. So what I'm trying to say with the, with living democracy is, is, is three things in one. Living democracy as in um, democracy is a living thing, actually, in its own right. We have to understand, as we understand that, the human body is an ecosystem. We we understand that more and more now in in scientific terms. It's not it's not this individual, yeah, you know, block. It's actually an ecosystem. More than half of, of whose cells are not it don't even have human DNA. We are an ecosystem of a whole lot of different organisms, um, and a community is is this combination of so many different organisms interacting. Democracy can and should be imagined as simply the extension of human society and one of the tools that human society uses to self-govern. So it, it, we can imagine it as a living thing in its own right, so de living democracy as a, as a living entity in its own right. But then flip it and think about living democracy in verbal terms. Democracy is a practice. Democracy is a living practice. And if we want to have a democratic system that is healthy and that it is that is worthy of its name, we need to live it. We need to live it every day. Um, we need to practice that the, the habits of democratic participation. Um, so that's a, a crucial a crucial part of it. And and then the third part, drawing it together, is that we can design democracy on the theme of of living things and ecology, that we can design democratic systems that actually learn the lessons of ecology, that are all about interdependence and diversity and managing change and um, all of these lessons that we can learn from living systems. So that's how I envisage living democracy, as a living entity evolving out of living things and designed on the basis of living things and as a living practice altogether. Wow. And so this is this um, you've written it as a you've written it calling it an ecological manifesto. So is the way that you're writing this um, like a history of including a history of democracy, or is it looking forward looking to like how we're going to bring about these changes? Um, where do you see that we can take this journey from where we are now, really quite stuck? into opening up our understanding of what you're speaking about because it makes so much sense to me. I mean, we're looking at this in our food systems. We're looking at wow. this in our health systems. We're looking at this, you know, in our design, you know, biomimicry. And this is applying that ecological thinking to the way that we work together as humans. And, and this is, it's, it's kind of revolutionary, really. Permaculture <laughs> for democracy. I mean, it's, it's, um, 
you know, to be clear, plenty of people have been talking about these ideas for a very long time. So yes, yes, in the book, I'm trying to do a bit of a history. Um, and that history goes back a very long way. And a, and a huge amount of what I'm writing in this book of the ideas for the future learns from Indigenous governance. Like, the, it's this is nothing new. This is, this is how humans governed ourselves for 95% of our history. Indigenous governance is all about understanding interdependence, understanding that relationality um, deeply and, and determinedly anti-hierarchical governance systems um, and understanding the human world to be one small part of this complex living um, world. It draws a lot on ancient ideas, but it draws a lot on quite modern ideas too. And there's a there's a lot of ideas that come through um, the you know the the commons um, revolutions of of the 15th, 16th, 17th century in in England and Europe, um, and kind of building through them into into the rise of of anarchism. The ideas of of Peter Kropotkin, one of the great anarchists of the 19th century, really he mapped out an ecological idea through through the concept of mutual aid. He was a he was an evolutionary scientist who kind of contra the Darwinian idea of competition said, no, evolution actually is a process of mutual aid. It's a process of, of communities, ecological communities actually evolving together in, in ways that help all of us together. Um, and then, you know, been, there's been some amazing work through, through the work of Eleanor Ostrom on governing the commons in the mid second half of the 20th century. Um, many, many, many people have presented these ideas. What I'm trying to do is gather them together for this moment in saying, okay, this is, this is the path. This is, this is a, a, you know, a kind of, I'm determinedly trying not to say the path. So when you say manifesto, I'm also trying to use the word manifesto a bit as well and playing with that. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. Kind of, what, what I really don't want to do is, is do what manifestos often do, which is say, this is the path, and if you if you if you go off this path, you will surely be lost. I'm trying to actually say, this is the conception, <laughs> you know, this is the worldview, and if we move across to this worldview, then whatever we do will work, actually, mm. because it because we each have to find our own path together, and our communities have to find those paths together, and we need to kind of have this. Eleanor Ostrom wrote about this idea of polycentricity so so many centers so instead of having centralized systems of power each community needs to make its own determinations together democratically working out its own way through and then you need to have communities of communities which do that um, together and and overlapping communities too and if we think about our own lives like we make these decisions in our lives in our families and in our friendship groups and sometimes in our suburbs and in our you know state or territory electorates and in our federal electorates and and in our purchasing patterns and it's all overlapping there's so many different things that we do so so i'm trying to i'm trying to take people on that journey i guess in a sense through through my writing and through this book of how we can how we can see how we got to where we got to um, and look at different ways of understanding the world and look at some examples of what people are doing all over the place 
from you know Wangaratta with the Voices for Indi through to some amazing work going on in Barcelona with um, new systems of government growing out of, of mutual aid projects. Um, Can you talk a bit about that, um, the Barcelona project? Yeah. So in Barcelona, um, Spain was hit extraordinarily hard by the global financial crisis. Um, and in kind of the years following 2008, um, they got up to 50% unemployment rates, people losing homes, people not being able to afford to eat. Um, and there were, the, there were huge protest movements that arose out of that, the movement of the squares, they called it, people going into the squares and the cities and demanding action. Um, and some really interesting political movements came out of that across the country, as they did with Occupy in, in the US and, and all sorts of ways. In Barcelona, they took a slightly different tack where they focused initially on mutual aid. So people were setting up... Um, food cooperatives where you could, you know, people were growing food and distributing and sharing and cooking food and making sure that people had enough to eat. And medical co-ops where if you couldn't afford the medical care you needed, you could go in there and other people would would contribute to keep it going so that you could get free medical care because government was not supplying. Mm. Um, and housing, um, there were there were all these squatters groups and housing co-ops where, where people were supporting each other to just stay where they were and, and have a roof over their heads. And they were finding, of course, that they were in conflict with government the whole time. And so heading up for a municipal election and, and municipal city, city governments in Europe in many places are actually much more powerful than, than in Australia. They're kind of like state governments. They have a lot of, um, a lot of um, management of, of a whole lot of city infrastructure. So coming up to the municipal elections in Barcelona, they came together and decided to kind of not form a political party, but they mapped out a set of principles that they would all they could all agree to in a series of conversations of democratic participatory conversations, and they ran for election as this group of independents called Barcelona in Comú, Barcelona in Common, together, and they won. So they won the government of Barcelona in minority with a couple of others with with a green party and um, and small other left parties. And, and Ada Colau, who's this housing activist, radical housing activist, became the mayor of Barcelona. Um, and she's now won a second term. They've won, they've won a second term in government. And they've been doing this amazing thing of running municipal government of a, of a large city, um, absolutely based on mutual aid and the commons and devolving power to the community and, you know, constant back and forth of communication with community groups and municipalizing the water supply. So taking it back from the privatized company, you know, instead of nationalizing, municipalizing it, taking municipal ownership, and then devolving the management of that to the local communities to run it themselves. Quite radical and astonishing things. And they've also been very determinedly globalist at the, at the same time. So saying that, you know, they, they've been, along with a few others, launching this fearless cities network of cities around the world who are looking to reclaim governance basically for the people and on behalf of the people running workshops around the place about how you can lead climate action and how you can lead, um, you know, refugee support action and how cities can... So the municipalities are running these workshops, you're saying? Yep. Absolutely. So... So what I'm hearing then really is it's the, the in order to address the challenges that we're facing in the world at the scale that we're 
facing like climate change, the refugee crisis is just growing every day, that this radical shift in the way that governance is happening is central to us actually addressing it at the scale that we need to move forward. That's absolutely, yeah, the, the core of my, of my approach to it and my theory that centralised systems of power are never going to solve this problem. And it's really hard for us to grapple with those ideas with things like climate change because we see climate change as a global problem which needs a global solution and therefore it would have to come from centralised systems of power. Well, centralised systems of power won't do it. (laughs) They just won't. Like we're seeing that time and time again and, and, and increasingly it's being greenwashed but you know, the Biden administration, which which is globally trumpeting that it wants to take leadership on climate action, is still approving new fossil fuel infrastructure mm-hmm. you know, now. <laughs> and here in Australia, you know, the, the, the federal Labor opposition, which again is, is trumpeting its commitment to climate action. At the same time, you have you have Anthony Albanese going and visiting the Calard Sea power station in Queensland. Um when it when it exploded, saying we need to get this coal-fired power station back online as soon as possible and, and coal will have a future for decades to come in Australia. So systems of centralised power are incapable of imagining an alternative because the you know one of the things that I'm going through in, in, in kind of the history of leading up to where we are is that capitalism and representative democracy in the West evolved hand in glove with the fossil fuel industry. Mm. They absolutely are the same process. Um, And you kind of can't disentangle them. (laughs) No, I wanted to ask you a bit about about the shifts that we're seeing in centralised political Mm. systems and this sort of heading towards the right and sort of fascist states emerging and and how, how we can balance that. That's that's sort of something that I feel like is is bubbling away and sometimes it feels a little bit out of reach when you're working at a community level, how, how to touch and how to, how to have some kind of level of agency there. To me, the agency that we have is our own agency in, in everything, in, in connecting with others. Um, our agency in confronting the rise of authoritarianism and, and hate is by countering that in our own lives, in every way we can, in my opinion. Um, a lot of what I think is the, is the most persuasive and brilliant analysis of the rise of the right goes back to what Hannah Arendt wrote in The Rise of the of Totalitarianism um, in the 1960s. And her analysis is that the politics of hate and the politics of authoritarianism arise out of disconnection, Mm. actually. Um, And they flourish in times when people are alienated from each other and disconnected from from each other in all sorts of ways. And they can only flourish in those kinds of circumstances. Because one of the fascinating things, if you look at it, is actually the far right is much better at diagnosing many of the problems 
than a lot of mainstream politics is. So the far right correctly diagnoses a lot of these problems. It correctly diagnoses things like, you know, the, the deindustrialization and the problems that it causes um, and, and the disconnection in our society. But what it does then very cleverly, because it's, it's run always basically by the rich and powerful people like Donald Trump, it correctly diagnoses the problems and then misdirects people away from the actual causes and convinces them to hate a scary other instead of convincing them to actually challenge the systemic understandings of how the world exists. Um, so it says, here are the problems, and they're, and they're right about what many of the problems are, and you can blame immigrants and you can blame black people and you can blame Jews and you can blame gay people, and, you know, and it's an easy cop-out and a, and a very clever way of misdirecting attention away from the fact that usually the people at the, at the head are the ones who are causing the problems. Mm. Um, so I think, to me, the fundamental answer to that is that we need to connect. We need to build social cohesion. Mm. This, this politics of hate thrives in disconnected societies. Mm. So the answer is to connect our societies. The answer is to build social cohesion, to cultivate trust, to cultivate mutual respect, to do these things like bring people together with very different opinions, to sit around tables together and, and nut them out politely and, and, and frankly together so that they can come to agreement and demonstrate that this other way of doing things is not only possible but it's better. Mm. So the far right says you're disconnected and creates an us and them and I think we need to say we're disconnected. So we need to create a we, they, we need to understand a better way of doing this and come together. Yeah. Um, and that's how we'll get through this. And to me, this is this is even more crucial at this point in history when we're facing ecological crisis. Because one of the things that's always terrified me most about the climate crisis and other ecological crises is that you can very, very easily imagine it leading us straight towards authoritarianism because people get scared and people want to protect what's ours. And you see that from the far right too. There's this rising idea of, of eco-fascism, yeah. um, which is not ecological, but it does say we need to protect our land, our healthy green land from those scary people over there who want to invade and take over. Mm. We need to understand the extraordinary risk that Climate increasing climate disasters and ecological disasters will will see us being pulled down that route, and the only solution is to bring people together. The only solution is to is to create this understanding of interdependence, and which is kind of um, challenging at the moment, particularly because of all the lockdowns and people being separated. I suppose you know that that challenge that we have to bring people together at this time, when we need to be having these conversations desperately. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's one of the, the the most confronting things for me in the last little while is, yeah, I'm absolutely convinced that it needs to be done. Some of it can be done through through Zoom and things, but not that well. It really needs to be done in person. Yeah. Um, and it was really it's been really striking to me how different the experience of lockdown in 2020 and 2021 were, where in 2020 there was this immediate burst of mutual aid mm -hmm. so many of us were kind of immediately kind of going around and letterboxing our neighborhoods and saying hey can we help out let's be connected through all of this and then government stepped in and started regulating 
and telling people what to do. And people fell into line for a while. And then when we had these extra lockdowns, I know Melbourne's was different because they had several along the way and it probably accelerated faster. But in the lockdowns, as I found them, because people expected government to provide the solutions, there was a lot more division and anger and a lot less we're all in this together. Yeah. <laughs> it was really very stark. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I picked that up before. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm somewhat hopeful that as we emerge from lockdown, as long as things don't get disastrous soon, um, we can start to bring people together and start to talk about start to talk about exactly this publicly and you know okay so what what went well during lockdowns what went badly during lockdowns how did we cope how did some of us cope better than others obviously a huge difference was in 2020 the government doubled job keeper and job seeker and and lifted mutual obligations and made life a lot easier for people who are living hand to mouth this year they didn't mm-hmm. um but, yeah, the difference between a mutual aid approach and a government regulatory approach and how it changed the way we think of each other and relate to each other I think is a really stark part of the picture. And how can we now run a sort of a post-pandemic participatory process kind of thing to work through how can we do better next time? Because if there's one thing we know, it's we're now... We're now in the world of consequences ecologically. We're going to be rolling from crisis to crisis for the rest of our lives. We need to be ready so that it's community mutual aid which drives a response and not government authoritarianism. Mm. So with COP26 upon us now too, I wonder what it is that... I feel a bit despondent about it, I have to be honest. (laughs) particularly with our country's response to it. Mm. What are you seeing? You're based in Canberra. What are you seeing and hearing and what's, what is the possibilities for engagement in that process in, or something around it that mm. can raise awareness or action or a sense of togetherness in this in Australia? I think that the sense of togetherness is completely disconnected from the government and will remain so and is likely to remain so for the foreseeable future. Um, that kind of approach to climate action needs to come from the community and it does come from the community and it and it already is coming from the community. We see that in obvious things like the student school strikes and, and things like that, but we see it in the growth of community renewable energy cooperatives and um, urban agriculture and, you know, so many of these things that are going on of people finding solutions that they want to get involved in. And there's a ton of that going on in Australia. In terms of the COP, um, I guess I have, I have a bit of hope that while I don't think that the centralised powers of, of government and corporations that run these COPs are going to actually provide the solution, what they are doing now is buying us a bit of space, actually. They're buying us a bit of time because they are proposing to cut emissions soon, nowhere near fast enough and nowhere near soon enough, but there is action and there's enough action I am hopeful to mean that we're not we're not going to go off the precipice quite so fast. Um, and so ev- every year 
that we can buy ourselves of carbon budget. Every every kind of ton of carbon is a ton of carbon worth it mm-hmm. because it gives us a bit more time to do the dramatic changes of systems that are going to be required to actually truly solve the climate crisis. So, yeah, I see the COP process. Obviously, it's a valuable process as long as it, you know, to the extent that it can buy us a bit more time. Um, but the problem with our global governance system is it's based on a collection of sovereign states acting as sovereigns, and that entire geopolitical system is based on individualism. It's based on on competition instead of an understanding of interdependence. So we need so, to change that. So what I'm hearing you saying then essentially is in, in creating this living democracy and bringing about the change that we need to see in the world, it is about us stepping up in our communities, in our places, in our neighbourhoods, in whichever organisation or whatever the capacity we have, that the power of positive change lies within our communities. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. The the power to change lies in all of us um, and we have to embrace that and we have to take take that agency. Um, You know, people often ask me, what's the one thing that I should be doing? And I say, what do you think the one thing, you know, what what do you want to do? Where where are your skills? What are you you interested in? Um, But the one thing I always say is that is that don't ask me what's the one thing I should do on my own because don't ever do it on your own. We have to be acting together. We have to be bringing people together in everything that we're doing. Um, And I kind of, I I envisage this process of change as kind of communities creating new ways of doing things together or adopting very old ways of doing things and reinventing these new ways of doing things. And by doing that and in the process of doing that, creating the context and the space for other people to follow suit. And that is one of the things that, so Ada Colau from Barcelona talks a lot about this idea that, you know, a globalism of of municipalities is not about kind of this this growth where suddenly Barcelona is taking over all of Spain and governing and and whatever. It's it's about seeding other ideas for other people to follow and you you get growth by new growth popping up around it and it won't be the same it'll be slightly different it might be completely different but with very similar values and that's how this change happens people all over the place starting processes of change to create a new system encouraging and creating space for others to follow suit and in that process importantly removing the the supports people growing their own little systems, new systems from the ground up, supporting and enabling and seeding others to do the same, and in the process, removing consent from the current system as it currently exists and saying, no, 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 like like with food, we don't want to buy into the supermarket duopoly. We don't want to buy into this whole system. We're going to start growing our own food and distributing in our own networks. And by doing that, we create the system ourselves. We create the new option, but we're at the same time withdrawing our consent from the way things currently operate. And that will accelerate the collapse of the current system while growing the new to take over. And I think one of the key things too about this transition is about sharing the story. So sharing the story of what's happening in Barcelona, sharing the story of what's happening in community so that so it becomes visible. And how to do that, I suppose, is a big question in and of itself because, you know, if you're not using the mainstream media 
that's existing because the stories don't really get into that. It is about sharing stories, sharing songs, rippling it out from from place to place and, yeah. Yeah, and your podcast is part of that, so thank you very much. Well, thank you for being my guest on the show today. It's been such a pleasure to to see you again and to, to dive into this conversation and good luck with finishing the book i look forward to it when it when it comes out and and um and sharing it sharing it around with as many possible people as we can and thank you because i always love speaking with you it helps to kind of ground my thinking and really give a sense of where it is that the work that i'm doing in the world mm-hmm. is and making a contribution you kind of get, helped me to create a framework for that thinking so thank you <laughs> thank you so much always always a pleasure to talk with you and yeah thanks for the opportunity All right, take care. You too. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this episode of Sensemaking in a Changing World. I'm delighted to have been able to share my conversation with Tim Hollow with you. I wish him all the very best at the election this weekend and wish all of us a climate-safe and just future. So remember to check out the show notes for more links and um, leave us a five-star review because it really does help the algorithm to notice and then share our little show. And also don't forget to subscribe because you'll get notification of whenever these episode podcasts come out. All right, I wish you all the best. Take care and I shall see you next time.